And as mentioned at the beginning of the service, we really enjoy meeting together uh, around Christmas times. I, I still remember the smells of my grandparents' homes um, going to each one on Christmas Eve, Christmas night. Just very special at-home feeling and memories. And in the same way, um, people would go to Jerusalem to meet with God at his temple because the temple in Jerusalem was the primary place where people would meet God. That's where God resided in, with, in all of his manifest glory. And so people would travel for days to get to his temple. And Joseph and Mary would travel to God's temple, as we see in Luke chapter 2, on Jesus' 40th day of life. Forty days after Jesus was born, they took him to the temple according to the law. Why the temple, though? And what does it mean for us today? Is it just an Old Testament thing? <clears throat> the temple was a place, first of all, uh, to celebrate God's faithfulness. In the, this sermon, I'm going to look at the, the historical reasons behind this text, and then the second half will be more the application. So in Luke chapter 2, we read how they went to celebrate God's faithfulness according to the law. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took Jesus, him, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and offer a, pair, offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. What was this consecration all about? And why would God require the firstborn to be set aside for him? And why the pigeons? Well, we had to go back to the Old Testament to discover the re rationale behind this. 1,300 years before Christ's birth, God delivered his people, the Israelites, out of slavery in Egypt, where they'd been for 400 years. And you know the story of Moses, let my people go, the Exodus, and how the tenth plague over Egypt was the plague of death. You know the story of how God commanded the Jews to put the blood of the lamb around their doorposts, and therefore the angel of death would pass over their homes and not come down and visit them and take their firstborn. For those not covered by the blood of the lamb, those households would have lost their firstborn sons and their firstborn male animals even. And so, um, God wanted his people to remember his magnificent deliverance of his people because this is what precipitated uh, the Pharaoh uh, saying, okay, get out of here, get out of here. My firstborn son is dead, just leave, you people, get out of here. And so they were able to, they were set free and, and God wanted them to remember and celebrate this. In fact, soon after they were released, God, through Moses, said this to his people in Exodus 13. He says, Consecrate every firstborn male to me, the firstborn from every womb among the Israelites, both men, man and domestic animal, it is mine. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, in the, into the promised land eventually, as he swore to you and your fathers, and he gives it to you, you are to present for the Lord every firstborn male of the womb. All firstborn livestock you own that are males will be the Lord's. You must redeem every firstborn of a donkey with a flock animal. In other words, don't kill your donkeys 
They instead substitute a lamb for the donkey. Don't kill the donkey. I don't know why. In the future, when your son asks you, what does this mean, Father? Say to him, by the strength of his hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of humans and the firstborn of livestock. That is why I sacrifice to the Lord all the firstborn of the womb that are males, but I redeem all the firstborn of my sons. Well, that makes sense, because God never authorized human sacrifice of children, as in other pagan religions. Instead, he said, I will provide animals as substitutes for your firstborn sons. And therefore... Joseph, 40 days after the birth of Jesus, would take Jesus to consecrate, set him apart. This belongs to you, this child. But in order to redeem the son or purchase the son back, they were to make a sacrifice of a lamb and a dove. Joseph and Mary would continue to remember and celebrate God's faithfulness throughout their lives. Um, he would do so, they would meet weekly in their Nazareth synagogue, and annually they would make trips and celebrate the, the Jewish festivals in Jerusalem. And they did so because they wanted to instill this value to remember God's faithfulness and celebrate God. And they passed it on to their son Jesus. So the temple was a place to celebrate, but then the temple was secondly a place to give God the very best in response to God's faithfulness. Again, God instructed them to redeem their firstborn child or buy back your firstborn son by offering a one-year-old lamb as a burnt offering and a young pigeon or dove as a sin offering in the son's place. But Joseph and Mary were too poor to afford a lamb. They were dirt poor. This was long before the Magi would come and present their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So they had very little resources, but they could afford two doves or two pigeons. And so God provided for the poor um, these provisions. You can bring two birds instead of a lamb and a bird. And this is what Joseph and Mary did. That's what they had, and so they gave God their very best. In verse 24, offer sacrifice, keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. So Joseph and Mary would continue to give their very best to God throughout their lives. We read in verse 41, every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. Despite all the violence that took place upon the birth of their child and that first Christmas day, you know, or, or surrounding those first years, when Herod took the lives of the two-year-old boys, despite that violence and that threat, despite the fact that they had to leave immediately and live in, in Egypt, despite all these things, they went back to Jerusalem year after year. That would have been an 85 to 90, 90 mile trip on foot. It'd be like us walking this afternoon, beginning our five or six day journey to Junction City, spending a few days there and then coming back home on foot. They made that sacrifice because they wanted to give God their very best. 
and celebrate him in Jerusalem. Verse 43, after the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boys stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. So unintentionally, Jesus remained back as a 12-year-old. The required length of time, according to the law, for a Jew to celebrate the Passover festival would have been at minimum two days. Would have been a requirement. And then they could go back home. But Joseph and Mary, they stayed the entire time, the entire seven days. It'd be comparable to people staying behind after all schools day prayed and cleaning up all the garbage in the streets and whatnot, long after everyone else has gone home or gone to eat Mexican food somewhere, you know, and, or eat, eat out. Um, you know, they were that committed to the Lord, they wanted to give their very best. And Joseph and Mary would pass on the same value to their son. We read in verse 52 that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature in favor with God and man. And isn't that every parent and grandparent's desire for their children, grandchildren, that they grow and mature in every way like this, in favor with God and humans? Thirdly, the temple was a place to hear from God, to receive discernment from God, encouragement and comfort. Now, we all know that a lot of teaching and worship took place in the temple. But the teaching, I think, took place even in a more tangible way, in an organic way, simply by people being present there and going there and celebrating together and hearing everyone's stories of how God's been faithful, listening to their testimonies, uh, receiving words of wisdom, just seeing people who love God making sacrifices, praising and singing, and for, for the children modeling what it looks like to love God. It's called the ministry of presence. Meet Simeon. Luke 2.25, now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon spotted him he took him in his arms and he praised God saying sovereign Lord as you have promised you may now dismiss your servant in peace for my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the sight of all the nations a light for revelation to the Gentiles in the glory of your people Israel for years Simeon had practiced the art of listening to God listening to the spirit of God so it's not surprising that God would choose Simeon to spot the baby Messiah and supernaturally been given the wisdom to know that this is the promised child. And it's not a surprise that God would use him to speak life-giving words to an overwhelmed young couple trying to wrap their brains around raising the Son of God. So Joseph and Mary would return to Simeon's words, these prophetic words of promise and encouragement time and time again as they would encounter opposition throughout their lives. And then there was another person in the temple courts, Anna. 
There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Peniel, the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at the very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, Anna was either 84 years old, or in other texts, it says she was widowed for 84 years. So if that's the case, then she would have been 106-ish. We aren't told specifically what Anna would have said in the temple, but we can assume that her words brought tremendous inspiration and confirmation to all who heard them, including Joseph and Mary as they would soon experience that great opposition from King Herod seeking to end the Messiah's life. And then they would have to exile into Egypt, hundreds of miles away in a foreign land, and they would have had to wait there for a few years before returning. Had Anna and Simeon chosen to take the day off from the Lord that day, for example then we would have never, ever heard of them. Do not underestimate the influence that you can have on those who are younger in the faith in a church like this. Simply by being present, the ministry of presence. Anna and Simeon were used mightily of the Lord simply because they were there And they were in tune with the Holy Spirit. And then finally, the temple is a place to experience authentic community. Gathering at the temple for the Jews would not only bring them closer to God, but they became closer to one another. See, these festivals were required of God, and they were communal experiences. Ever since that first venture that Joseph and Mary set out from Nazareth, when Mary was pregnant and they were alone, ever since that, that trip, they never once walked it alone again. It was much more enjoyable this time around as they traveled via the comfort of a Dodge, a caravan. In verse 44, thinking he was in their company, they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When Jesus was left behind, notice what it says. They looked all over in the company, in the caravan of people, amongst relatives and friends. Have you seen Jesus? Anyone, have you seen Jesus? And when no one had seen him, they had to return to look for him. Now you might say, uh, temple worship is a cool thing, but it's required under the old covenant. Today we no longer have to go to Jerusalem to meet with God or worship him. We can meet God anywhere. And we don't have to go to church for that matter to belong to church or to belong, or we don't have to belong to a church to have a relationship with God. We can meet God in our cars, in our living room, wherever we are. After all, didn't the Apostle Paul say, our bodies now are the temples of the Holy Spirit. God lives within us. We don't have to go to a church building or to Jerusalem in a temple to meet with God. So why bother to gather together for worship? Why not meet him in the privacy of our own living rooms, on our lazy boy, or in our vehicles, or anywhere, for that matter? Why worship online? 
Why not just worship online, I mean, instead of come here in person? Well, simply because God's word is filled with commands, do not forsake meeting together. Hebrews 10, do not neglect meeting together as some of you are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another daily. Furthermore, when God talks of the temple through the Apostle Paul and other places, the temple is used in the plural. 1 Corinthians 3, do you not know that you together are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you together? For God's temple is holy and you all are that temple. We are living stones being built up together as a holy temple before God. So we together are that temple. And that's why we're to gather together as a church. Just as the Jews gathered together in the temple to celebrate God, to give God our best, to hear from God, and to experience authentic community. You see, God's principles apply to the New Covenant era the same principles as they do Old old Covenant. So here's the practical part. I want to go over these four points again just with an illustration, and then we'll be done. Why do we gather together as Christians in a church? First, to celebrate and remember God. Lynn and I celebrated our anniversary in Washington, D.C., a year and a half ago or so, and it was a glorious time, especially because we were there when the Washington Nationals baseball team made that marvelous comeback and won the World Series. And we were present in the city of Washington, D.C. when the town went ballistic, and it was electric with joy as they celebrated together. And so Lynn and I went and bought our obligatory Washington Nationals T-shirt before we returned to McPherson. Why do people do that? Why do they have victory parades? Because people love being together to celebrate. Sure, we can remember God in our personal quiet times at home, but how much more inspirational is it when we're together listening to each other's stories, celebrating together, hearing testimonies, learning insights from one another? How much more fulfilling is it to worship and serve alongside others and celebrate together, just like they did in the Victory Parade in D.C.? The impact is so much greater. And Jesus said in Matthew 18, For where two or three gather in my name, there I am in their midst with them. But again, we're not just to gather together because it's inspirational, but it's because we're commanded to be together as his body. And then secondly, we gather together to give God our very best of our time, talent, and our treasures. I had a swim coach in high school who was a very strict coach, respected but very stern, um, and he would regularly preach that we are a family and we're committed to this year to being together and doing our best, and if you don't, then you'll land yourself on the bench, and at worst, if you're inconsistent, off the team. And one day I asked my coach if I could miss practice for an important family town, out-of-town event. And so I used, used my words very carefully when I asked my coach this, and he consented. I said, all right. What he didn't know was the event was a 30 miles outside of town on the ski slopes with my cousins. Well, the Lord taught me a big lesson that day. I weaseled out of practice 
But the lesson came, I think it was on my third jump over the ski jump, when my body lost control, and my body contorted, and I was flailing in the air, and my body slammed into the slope on, on the ground, and my skis came up and whacked me in the face, a giant gash on my chin. I knew that it would require stitches, but I wasn't about to get stitches because we had an upcoming meet, very important swim meet, where I was a diver, and so I just put a bandage on it, and I went to practice the next morning. Every time I dove in the pool, my head just throbbed because it was so painful, but I dared not tell the truth. Well, my coach eventually saw the big bandage on my face. He approached me and said, Black, what happened to you? Uh, coach, I slipped on the ice. <laughs> I said, well, he had a way of getting the truth out of me, and I, I was a bad liar, and so there were consequences. He did not kick me off the team, because I was only a 10th grader for the next two and a half years, you got to know, I never, I never tried to weasel out of practice again. I remained fully committed to the team, to my coach. I didn't lie, and I tried my best. And the Lord honored that. And my parents held me to that as well, that same commitment. Now, we parents... We want our kids to remain committed to whatever it is, whether it be in the theater or music or, or debate or a sports team. We want our kids to give their all. And we hold them accountable because we tell them, after all, this might mean a championship or a state title for your, your town and, and for your school. What can be more important than that? And I love sports, and that's, that's our pursuit. But I'll tell you what's more important than that. It's the reward that we'll receive in eternity. Millions of years after our state trophies will disintegrate into dust, the church of Jesus will remain. And that's why God says, I want you to give your best of your time and your talents and your treasure to my church because that will endure forever. And so people gave their best yesterday and past weeks as we gathered food. Thank you for all who gathered food for their food baskets and those who, who packed it up and, and those who delivered it and for the, those who contributed financially for this endeavor. Uh, just a whole lot of people, especially Andrew, Emma, and Isabella Shandy who spearhead this every year. Um, just very grateful for them. They gave their best on an early Saturday morning yesterday. And then finally, not finally, thirdly, we, give, we gather together to hear from God. Again, more is taught than caught. I remember some of my childhood Sunday school teachers growing up, but I cannot tell you one thing that they taught me. I can't remember a single lesson. But I do remember that I grew to love Jesus because of their love for me and how they modeled for me that love. These ordinary people welcomed us to Sunday school and they taught us and they sang to us and they shook our hands in the hallways and they provided snacks for us and they, they cooked the fellowship meals afterwards where we all ate together. And I just remember all these memories of loving God. And I gotta tell you, there's so many kids in my home church that grew up to be missionaries and and Christian teachers and I'm just very effective for the Lord and pastors and whatnot. and same with this church in Lynn's home church there's a man named Harry Dewall who stood in the hallway every Sunday without fail unless he was sick 
And the kids would run up, run up to him. He'd reach in his pockets and he'd pull out candy and give to the kids every week. Even when my wife returned home from college, there was Harry. Harry walked up to Lynn and said, here you go. Gave her candy. Even when we were married, I started getting candy. I loved Harry Dewall. It was simply the ministry of presence that made a huge, huge, huge impact on the children of the church. Simply because Harry was there. I learned about God's love through my church family and so did Lynn. My parents had us in church on day one of our lives just about threw us in the nursery. They weren't afraid of germs. They said, we've got to build up their immune system. And we were there ever since. And then finally, we gather together to experience authentic community. Again, why do so many gather at football games or basketball games or victory parades? Why do we do that? Why don't we just stay home and listen on the radio? or read it tomorrow in the newspaper or on the internet. We love gathering together and having tailgate parties, places. We love it because of the atmosphere of being together. God created us to be together. There are 59 one another commands in the New Testament alone. Commands, not suggestions. They will know that you are my disciples by the way you love one another, by the way you commit to one another by the way you care for one another. Now, I'm so grateful that we have church online these days, and we need it. it it's a gift from God, and uh, thanks especially to Connor, who was a lot behind us getting it up and running. It's, it's a necessity today. Because of COVID, there are a lot of people at risk, or people who could put people at risk. There are people who are shut-ins or in nursing homes who utilize the internet. I'm so glad that we have that, and we'll always have that available. But it's not God's ideal to watch church online or turn on the television set and I watched David Jeremiah today. That was my church. That's not God's ideal. God's ideal is that we be together. Whether it be at church or in a home or wherever you do church, we need to be together. Once the COVID lifts, then, um, then I have a feeling that a lot of Christians former churchgoers will have discovered a new habit or they have, they have taken on a new habit like, hey, we, we kind of enjoy this thing watching church in our pajamas, you know? That's a cool thing and, and so church will be church interaction and commitment to one another will become lessened incredibly. Not just here, here but everywhere, worldwide. And so that's not God's ideal, obviously. It's the exact opposite. He wants us to be together. Um, that would be called consumer Christianity at its best. Or I, used to, I like to call it church light. It tastes great, but it's less filling. <laughs> Again, God created us for one another. <clears throat> Just want to end with this. We can say all we want, I love Jesus, I love Jesus, but, you know, his church, church really annoy me. The people in the church annoy me. I love Jesus, I'm just going to do me and Jesus at home. That's exactly the same as going to a wedding and going up as a best man to your groom and saying, hey, dude, I really appreciate you, man. I love you, man. But your bride, bridezilla, man, there is no way. She, she's a loser. I mean, who would do that? 
That would be highly offensive to a groom, right? Well, guess what? The church is the bride of Christ. And people say, I don't need the church. I got me and Jesus. It grieves the heart of of Jesus because he loves his bride. His bride are us. He loves us. He loves his church. He loves the body of Christ. In fact, he, he can't wait to spend eternity with us. And when we neglect the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, then we're breaking his commands to love one another. Again, from day one, I want to thank my parents who did as Joseph and Mary did for their son. And and God's priorities were passed on to Jesus. That's why God chose Joseph and Mary to begin with, because of their love for God prior to the birth of Jesus, you know? Um, And that's why um, I'm grateful my parents passed that on to me too. I'm not a pastor. I don't love the church simply because I get paid and it's my job. Because years before I got paid and it was my job, I was dedicated to the church. I loved the church of Christ. When I was a youth group, I was there. I was a leader. I was, you know, doing things like that. So my question is, are you committed to the same values and priorities that Joseph and Mary had in raising their family? They did so to celebrate God. They were dedicated. They they gave God their very best. They heard from God, and they committed to community. Jesus said, they'll know that you're my disciples by the way you love one another. And you know, when when I was preparing this sermon yesterday, it occurred to me that, huh, these four points are exactly the same four points as in our mission statement. And so I throw that up. We're committed to community at the very top. We are a community growing together and then worship together, disciple together, serve together, multiply. I mean, these are the same commitments that we have as a church here. And I am jealous for the church of Jesus. And I may feel some, I may, may make people feel guilty for not being so committed, but you know what? It's not my intention. My, my intention is simply to communicate the heart of God to us and his love for his church. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your church. Lord, you love your church. You love your bride. You love your people so much. And I, I do too, Lord. Um, you Teach me to love even more. Teach us all to love each other more that we may commit to one another. Uh, And so, Lord, um, I pray that this COVID thing will pass soon. Um, And when it does, I pray, Lord, that your church, not only here, but in all around the world, will explode as people are set free, like coming out on a spring morning. Lord, I pray, Lord, that your church will explode rather than the opposite. Uh, And so, God, um, bless your church. Bless Countryside. Um, as we continue to serve you and worship you together and love you. In Christ's name, amen.